There's an expectant hush, so I shall start. Um, welcome to the Malinowski Lecture 2018. Um, it's my great pleasure to introduce Max Bolt. Before I give a little preamble, I just want to make two announcements, which are the standard announcements. The first is that we're going to be having a reception after the lecture in the senior dining room on the fifth floor of the old building, to which everybody is warmly invited, so please come along. And secondly... We will be taking questions during the reception. Well, Max is very happy to receive questions during the reception. We will not be um, having a Q&A after the lecture. Max received his PhD in social anthropology from the LSE in 2011. After a spell working in the money section at the British Museum, he took up a post in, at the Department of African Studies and Anthropology at Birmingham in 2012, where he's currently a reader. Max's work focuses on labor, development, migration, and more recently, will-making and inheritance in southern Africa. The monograph based on his doctoral thesis was published in 2015 by Cambridge University Press. Titled Zimbabwe's Migrants and South Africa's Border Farms, The Roots of Impermanence, the book challenges the notion of farm workers as undifferentiated, highlighting instead how hierarchies of labor and status are overlain by age, ethnicity, and gender. Other highlights of the book include the focus on the dynamic and diverse ways in which the workspaces are life places, the exploration of the tension between paternalism and management on farms and their racialized and classed implications, and the, and the paradox of permanence on farms under conditions of immense uncertainty. The outstanding nature of the book was recognized when it won the 2016 British Sociological Association and BBC Thinking Aloud Ethnography Award. Beyond his monograph, Max has published his work in a wide variety of journals and edited volumes, including a special issue of the Journal of Southern African Studies with Dinah Rajak, which is called Labour, Insecurity and Violence in South Africa, and with Kate Mega and Laura Mann, a special issue of the Journal of Development Studies, Making the Right Connections, Globalisation, Economic Inclusion and African Workers. Since 2016, Max has been an ESRC Future Research Leaders Award holder. The project he's working on for this is called Entitlements, Disputes and Provision for the Future, Making Wills and Negotiating Inheritance in South Africa's Middle Class. And I think it's um, this work largely that he's going to be talking about in his lecture. He's the editor of the Journal of South African Studies and, maybe more importantly, plays the saxophone in the department alumni band, The Functionalists. <laughs> this evening, Max's lecture is titled Fluctuating Formality, Anthropology and the Structure of Difference. So, handing over to Max. Thank you, Katie, for the kind introduction and to LSE's Department of Anthropology for the generous invitation to give this lecture. I'm deeply honoured to be here. This evening, I want to develop an approach to the formal economy. I want to extend our theories of state and market infrastructures into the economic margins and explore what those margins can tell us about state and market. As a shorthand for inclusion in a regulated system, being in the formal sector was once about having a job. As employment shrinks and financialization gathers pace, anthropologists and others have shown how value is extracted from labor under a wider rubric of economic activities. Financial inclusion is now a buzzword in development and policy. The connections between work and the formal system are increasingly centered on efforts to repay bank loans at the bottom of the pyramid. 
de facto workers are dressed up as entrepreneurs, responsible for risk and beyond the reach of labour regulation. But talk of the decline of work invites us to think broader. Even in the heyday of formal employment, much state mediation of economic life actually happened beyond the world of production. And today, despite predictions of a neoliberal withering of the state, there's been an increase in regulation, albeit unevenly. In some countries, including the global southern giants of Brazil, India, China and South Africa, welfare grants are one way that economic life is formalised. As people cobble together sources of income and, and income and security, the very administration of what people own becomes part of the struggle to make a living. Inheritance is a particular battleground. Quarrelling family members depend for their futures on who gets what when father passes on. Networks of formalised economic activity, then, extend well beyond employment and even from borrowing from banks. The corollary, of course, is that exclusion and inequality require a similarly wide-angle view. There are dangers in assuming that we already know enough about formalised arrangements to understand what they are. How and how far do the concepts and categories of the formal economy come to shape people's self-understandings and relationships? How do the rules and practices of state institutions mediate economic life? How ordered are the resulting arrangements? In social science disciplines that rely on abstracted models of human experience, formality often means the law in its own rule-based terms. Abstractions make good foundational stories. The liberal individual equal before the law. The rational market actor hedged in by property and contract regulation, both detached from existing commitments. But comparing formal law to informal practice tells us little about how the abstractions of formality, the roles and the categories, are given concrete reality. As ethnographers, we should question what the detachment means and what rewiring through formal process looks like. Not just how formal rules are underpinned by informal practice, but how the two actually constitute one another. Abstraction also raises a related issue for anthropology. The discipline has an awkward relationship with the formal in its other sense, that of deriving analytical models and principles that stand apart from context. Anthropology, of course, relies on abstraction's clarity, but this is tempered by its commitment to the mess of life that we encounter in ethnography. The discipline fluctuates between the systemized specification of structure or network and the looser evocation of a world that exceeds either of these. This was clear to Bronislav Malinowski. He argued for a detailed, inductive investigation of economic life. In fact, he was warier of neat, abstract models than many of his contemporaries in anthropology. Morris Bloch, in his, Morris, in, in his Malinowski lecture, noted that Malinowski saw beyond tightly specified categories and roles. Others have more elaborate theories about structure, but this was because they dwelt on those moments when rules are most sharply stipulated and enforced, and they abstracted from these. Malinowski was equally interested in the pragmatic unevenness of institutionalization, how structured our accounts of structure should be, and how formalized our accounts of formality is a crucial question for building an approach to the formal economy today. 
After all, reifying formalised practice as the formal economy is itself a popular abstraction with which we must contend. Taking a focus on South Africa, I want to explore how formality is actually sustained in everyday terms. To do this, I want to dwell on formality's margins, extending anthropology's insights about state and market infrastructures into people's concerns with homes, kinship, and providing for the next generation. This also means taking the emphasis away from production or finance to investigate the state mediation of economic life more broadly, from bureaucratic office to township house and back again. How, on the margins, do formal institutions appear to operate through cleanly predefined categories? States formalize, we know this, but other people also give reality to official classification, allowing and even inviting regulation into their own agendas and projects. Conversely, official process may have little to do with regulation or measurement. Formality is sustained by different agendas, hidden behind the official terminology and paperwork. It may be as fragile, fraught and negotiated as the rest of our unstable world, even as the formal-informal distinction is insisted upon. Yet that itself may produce structuring effects of a different kind. Different degrees of exposure to this instability and different capacities to manipulate state authority structure how some people are able to accumulate wealth while others are marginalised. So in what follows, I'll introduce what this means in South Africa and draw together quite different anthropological perspectives to develop an approach to formality. Armed with this, I'll then take you into my recent fieldwork on urban inheritance, to formality and legal administration, formality beyond it, and how the formal economy invites us to reconsider the state itself. South Africa's economy has long been dominated by a self-consciously formal sector. Under apartheid, it was the textbook for how formal wage labour articulated with and was subsidised by non-capitalist production in communal rural reserves. Black male labour migrants were brought in as cheap labour power. Wages on the gold mines excluded the costs of livelihood, retirement and dependence, all offstage in rural homes defined out of a white South Africa. The abstract model was crucial for its clarity, but increasingly criticised for leaving out how people understood themselves in the system. The renowned songs of Sutu men brought by train to Johannesburg, the city of gold, squared rural masculine heroism with industrial exploitation. They also extolled their special skills as shaft sinkers, defending access to these jobs. Stories resolutely defended migrants' outside identities and positioned them squarely in formal workforce categories. During apartheid, labour contracts were non-white South Africans' preeminent connection to formalised capitalism. Even settled black uh, urban workers were excluded from owning urban property from bank loans and overwhelmingly from the formal deceased estates process. When apartheid ended, this majority was drawn into the formal economy in a far more thoroughgoing way. Access to credit, the right to own urban assets, and the, and the dream of accumulating wealth. Yet it's no accident that the influential concept of adverse incorporation started life in South Africa. Exclusion, the concept reminds us, is not the only problem. 
People may occupy dramatically disadvantaged positions within a political economy, something ignored by the idea that financial inclusion simply brings everyone into the game of the market. If incorporation is uneven, so is formality. In contemporary South Africa, formality's reach depends not only on inclusion, but also on how far people allow its processes and categories to operate. Formal roles and processes, their very meaning, remain shot through with overlapping obligations and informal types of regulation, while formality inflects these meanings and shifts expectations. Formality doesn't simply encompass and trump all of this. Johnny Steinberg has, has described the provisional and partial nature of South Africans' consent to being governed. The apartheid legacy has left the population suspicious of state enforcement. Officials like police are only sometimes allowed in and under fickle conditions. Beyond, there's a large degree of institutional blindness. This was impressed on me by my first stint of ethnographic fieldwork with white commercial farmers and black workers on the Limpopo River, South Africa's border with Zimbabwe. The farm's local significance was magnified by the high unemployment that characterized the region, exacerbated by cross-border migration in the wake of Zimbabwe's political and economic crisis. On the margins of South African capitalism, the arrangements that constituted formality appeared obvious. Connection to a global fruit economy, national and export standards, state-of-the-art production processes, labeled and tracked fruit and documented, even occasionally audited, wage workers who lived on-site in huge barrack-like labor compounds. Here, then, was a case of adverse incorporation. But it quickly became clear that the formal in the formal economy was far from obvious. Between the occasional inspections, everyday state regulation of workers revolved around who was allowed to be on the farm. Performances of formality mediated by brokers were scripted around formal paperwork in encounters with officials like police and border patrols. The documents didn't amount to a coherent network of information or rule, and they didn't measure anything reliably. State records were out of date but proved farmer sponsorship. They were combined with worker IDs made by farmers themselves on their home computers, which was so useful for migrants that counterfeit manufacture boomed across the border. Each formal connection, notionally backed by state authority, was murky, predictable only in comparison to the extreme uncertainty of a border full of transient strangers. Paradoxically, a whole range of people upheld this paperwork's authority as a register of formality. For police and border patrols, it distinguished workers from deportable border jumpers. For seasonal workers, it reduced the chance of deportation, but doubts about even authentic documentation could lead to arrest. For senior workers, documents provided a way to cultivate personalized influence as gatekeepers, as in this image. For white farmers, vague window-dressing labor contracts and the monthly formalized ritual of payday offered a veneer of modern corporate process. The categories of formality were agreed upon. Black people's inclusion on the farms was organized through the notions of worker and workplace, Critically, though, these underpinned their reproduction, their abilities to make homes and support families, not just their productive roles. Not simply emanating from the state, the categories and paperwork scripted interactions. Equally importantly, they gave incontestable weight to social differences. White people who determined formal status versus black people who were, who, who were granted or denied it. 
and black people of the farm versus border jumpers. The documents, labels, and performances hid the different agendas that generated doubt about their significance. Yet they also reproduced stark inequality, the conditions for accumulation by farmers, and the pliant vulnerability of a migrant workforce. Such racialized boundary making, while especially stark here, is a general feature of capitalism and the state. Think of the ways migrants are routinely kept vulnerable worldwide. Meanwhile, formality is sustained by different people in radically different positions for their own reasons. Understanding how people and processes are incorporated into the formal economy means grasping how formality itself is incorporated into the margins. What does it mean to be drawn into formality? This would have been a recognizable question for Bronislav Malinowski. In South Africa, history has not been kind to him. In the 1920s and 1930s, he was tasked with conceptualizing social change, an exercise in practical anthropology. The result was controversial. Malinowski's culture contact underlined a perceived fundamental difference between Europeans and Africans. Anthropologists needed a pre-baseline contact, uh, a pre-contact baseline rather, to understand how each culture was functionally integrated before the onset of European influence. This has exposed him to charges of reifying culture, fixing it in time. He was held to pander to colonial authorities, and his ideas would later bear uncomfortable resemblance to the apartheid regime's claims that racial difference was a fact of life justifying legal separation. The ideas of his chief rival in British anthropology at the time, Alfred Radcliffe Brown, have fared better. His argument about South Africa endured and set the tone for anti-apartheid anthropology. South Africa's differences were not between those within a system and those beyond it in other societies. Instead, this diverse population of colonizers and colonized should be regarded as a single, interdependent, integrated society with internally structuring dynamics. Yet while his recommendations for South Africa would not now be endorsed, Malinowski nonetheless offers a provocation to anthropologists today to pay attention to what outside might mean and account for continuing experiences of exclusion, difference, and distance, a lack of everyday integration. Malinowski described the effects of becoming part of a formalized industrial political economy. Black South Africans were drawn into new roles, ways of understanding themselves as people, and encounters with government and policing. They faced acute exploitation, which eroded social and economic arrangements that might previously have provided protection, an argument, incidentally, about cultural decline that he shared with Karl Polanyi. Malinowski's was hardly a romantic view. Quote, the contact anthropologist has to study the methods of recruitment and the wage system, the effects of the color bar legislation and of the anomalous contracts of African labor, as well as of the past laws. His study will reveal to him that for the present, the Europeans are in a position to dictate the legal and economic terms. The wages received by a mine laborer do not compensate the tribal economy for the total loss caused by his absence. For Malinowski, economy in South Africa was bound up with law and technical administration. Incorporation hinged on the ways that key forms of regulation became organizational principles of life and livelihood. This was his zone of culture contact. 
Malinowski underscored a sharp distinction between this and the African culture that lay beyond, and this was unduly overdrawn. But we can extract a question from this. Once state-administered capitalism, once state-administered capitalism is underway, how far is everything already encompassed within a system, and how far are there social arrangements that can be considered outside? But we need to do this while foregrounding Malinowski's earlier insight, the unevenness of institutionalization. Indeed, in a sense, the Manchester School would bring Malinowski's and Radcliffe Brown's approaches together in their research on themes like wage labor in Southern Africa. They emphasized social relations, like Radcliffe Brown, but they were sensitive to the interplay between the self-conscious abstraction of defining a social situation and tracing connections to a more complex world beyond the scene. Structure was situational and contextual. They left an outside in play. This interplay trains our attention on the limits of the formal economy, of institutional practices of states and markets that submit labor, property, and even inheritance to calculation on the same monetary scale. Recent seminal scholarship has focused precisely on the forms of judgment, measurement, and calculation that constitute the market. Timothy Mitchell goes so far as to argue that the economy as a modern concept is the result of attempts to measure. Michel Callan and Corey Kaliskan, from an actor network theory perspective, also emphasize networks of calculation. Commodities are detached from their previous contexts of production and use and related to other commodities and to money through pricing. People are themselves valued and measured against each other in terms of money, productivity, risk, increasingly through algorithms. For some in this school of thought, the theories and pronouncements of economics don't just reflect life. They're doing the measuring that defines the field. And they're acted out by financial practitioners whose assessments and valuations are steeped in their economics thinking. So this approach attempts to reveal the rules of the market as the principles of life on the ground. It draws our attention to measurement and valuation, its potential fragility, and the distributed rather than top-down nature of institutionalization. But the results are restrictive. Examples come from formalized and financialized markets because they're easier to trace. Even here, anthropologists point out the non-calculative, unmeasured dimensions, the affect and ethics, the centrality of convincing stories, even the range of meanings attributed to monetary transfers. So, what lies outside networks and beyond measurement? Most people in the world don't live in information-saturated credit infrastructures we lose the perspective to see how their attempts to make a living are excluded or partly incorporated. Even where a residual is acknowledged, beyond calculation, the gaps are hard to appreciate from within the network. Formalism in theoretical perspective, an attempt to derive basic principles, means detaching analysis from background noise. What these scholars simply call the economy offers a starting point for understanding formalized economic practices more specifically, that particular intersection of bureaucratic regulation and monetization. Yet, the distinction can also appear unduly stark. Ordered connections appear definitively asserted. Measurement and judgment are either there or they're not. This starkness is apparent from the opposite side, too. Anthropology focusing on the margins and those relegated to the informal economy. This focus is important. Across the world, people appear surplus to the needs of capital. 
says Tanya Murray Lee, quote, if some portion of the relative surplus population died tomorrow, the rate of profit would remain the same and the GDP in the affected countries would increase. Recent research, especially on Africa, has shown crisis and marginality to deny people any planable future. Youth cultivate an openness to possibility, however tenuous. In South Africa, where employment was relatively high, decline has been dramatic since the 1970s. Research emphasizing workers has given way to studies of informal traders and their networks. James Ferguson describes a scramble for any chance to be dependent and thus protected. Yet formalized practices, economic practices, always extended beyond labor. People who appear excluded by their unemployment are often in the margins of the formal and not just through adverse financial incorporation. Moreover, while Janet Reutemann importantly notes that formal and informal can collapse into each other on the margins, people may equally attempt to sustain formality as a distinct register. We need to understand how and why, and taking a cue from Malinowski, how such institutionalization is itself uneven. Pierre Bourdieu's approach to the economy as an institutionalized field is more open to variation and potentially more accommodating of the margins. The economy has categories, prices, commodities, labor, assets. People come to be socialized into it. They have to learn the rules of the game. The practical reasoning through which people navigate needs to be investigated and described. It can't be assumed from the abstract rationality deduced by economics. Again, what Bourdieu describes broadly constitutes the market, with formal administration at its core. In fact, he sees the economic field more than any other as shaped by the state, its modes of thinking and categorizing, and its political and bureaucratic interventions. The predictable behavior that economists perceive as proving their assumptions, Bourdieu argues, is in fact the result of a whole field of measurement, policy, and administration. Here, Bourdieu is in some agreement with Mitchell. But Bourdieu's framing encourages us to consider how and how well people can navigate a field. Practice helps us bring together people's attempts to create possibilities on the margins with the formalization of economic lives. So we've got several of the building blocks in place for developing an anthropological approach to the formal economy here. A distributed inf infrastructure of regulatory institutions, the categories through which people and things are measured, the uh, the, the, uh, how the economic field is learned and enacted. But the margins present a further provocation. How far is formality actually shaped by measurement? What I found on the Zimbabwean-South African border was a register of formality that operated as though it made clear measurements, defining people by contract, immigration status, and so on. Its actual durability was in, in, was in enabling different actors to pursue their particular projects. A fundamental challenge for an anthropology of the formal economy is to understand how such different agendas sustain a shared sense of order, how the goals of the state interact with those of other people, and how exclusionary difference is thereby reproduced. The ambiguity of formality extends into the heart of the state, of course. Anthropological research on the machinery of state institutions offers important insights here. Michael Hertzfeld has argued that bureaucratic rationality is less a simple description than a story with, with rhetorical force. The fixed form of bureaucratic language and ritual conjures up cold, objective legalism, but it's what he calls a mask for slippery and changeable meaning. 
Matthew Hull has recently shown that documents do particular work in connecting system and functionaries. Their established material form diffuses individual agency and responsibility into institutional process. Formalities, rituals have other goals than measuring or calculating. But these insights need taking out of the office. In an institutional turn, recent economic anthropology has begun to do this. It stresses the disparate projects that are sutured together in what we perceive as a system. The stitching can be stronger or weaker. The pieces clearly aligned or confusingly mismatched. And the result given shape by legitimating narrative. Economic infrastructures are manifested through the mess of life as lived, the layers of regulation, and people's varied efforts to get things done. Popular economies are recast as arenas full of official administration, advice, and intervention. This, whether amidst neoliberal restructuring on India's Hooghly River and Laura Bear's work, government support to Ecuador's sharing economy in Taylor Nelms's, or reform of South Africa's debt economy in that of Deborah James. In each, officials, expert practitioners, and other people massage the contradictions between rules and life. But they also sustain the everyday reality of the state's categories to achieve their own diverse ends. This entanglement is crucial. Formal structure and messy action are inseparable, yet the formal is also distinguished by the way it's self-consciously maintained. Explicit insistence on official categories has ordering and disordering effects. As people sustain formality through shared concepts... These may reinforce social differentiation, inclusion and exclusion, but not simply by making calculations or performing dominant notions of economy. Very different projects, agendas and understandings hide behind shared categories. Formality produces performative scripts that work because its fixity is taken for granted and not necessarily because people care what its premises really mean. So I now want to pull all this together in an ethnographic case. But I'll do so by taking the focus away from labour or finance to deceased estates. Formalised inheritance has been neglected in writing on capitalism, occluded by production, something, of course, recently addressed by Thomas Piketty. If we want to understand the state mediation of economic lives, we have to pay more attention to how legal and official categories are sustained in social reproduction. In this broader view... The pronouncements of legislators, bureaucrats, and ordinary people are as important as policymakers, economists, and the scientific managers of labor in defining the economic field. Inheritance has a distinguished history in anthropology, taking its cue from Jack Goody. But norms of inheritance take on a new life as plans about deceased estates, legal bureaucracy's own category. Here, Formal classifications and processes become a bottleneck in people's lives. In South Africa, deceased estates constitute a self-conscious system. Historically, a central issue concerned its administrative boundaries. How far should black people be included? Since the pre-apartheid colonial era, European law had been primarily for white people, understood as individualized citizens, while black people were supposed to have collective customs. Malinowski's simplistic view of pre-contact culture, pre-contact culture reflected this attempt to exclude. Matters were rarely so neat. People, blank people kept appearing in the formal system, incorporated into groupings other than those of race and tribe, as soldiers, 
will-makers, Christian spouses, or just the wealthy. There were, dif- there were difficult questions about who was included, but once people were, things needed doing properly. After the end of apartheid, the question of the system's reach was resolved through massive expansion. In the early 2000s, constitutional court decisions declared racially separate legal codes unacceptable. Overburdened and under-resourced, the reach of the state in inheritance is tenuous. Two-thirds of cases, mostly concentrated in rural areas, are never reported. In Johannesburg, a, a local master of the high court, the authority for deceased estates, was established to take the overflow from near, nearby Pretoria, the official seat of government. Situated close to the township agglomeration of Soweto, it soon processed more than 30,000 estates each year, double the Pretoria office that came in second place nationally. In the late apartheid era, another formal system, that of black urban housing, changed dramatically, setting the stage for collision into the reformed deceased estates infrastructure. Under apartheid, black people had been denied the right to own urban property. Townships were state-built rental areas for the black workforce. In the late apartheid era, reforms were intended to create black asset holders with a stake in the system. Think of Thatcher's plans in the UK at the same time. Renting households were offered long leases, then outright ownership, and then for free. By apartheid's demise, unable to maintain the housing stock, the state offered local authorities monetary incentives to decide on rightful owners as quickly as possible. The systemness of formality crumbled. Municipal records were often out of date. The hearings to determine owners appear often to have been perfunctory. Many residents now claim they were unaware that their houses had been put into someone's name. Others sent a kin member as a representative and only years later realised that this delegate had been granted sole title. For many, for many township dwellers, there's a basic incompatibility between the very notion of individual ownership and the ideal of the family house. Even amidst apartheid-era insecurity, the home had been shared among patrilineal siblings as a focal point of urban kinship. Resembling the rural homestead, the family house is where the ancestors are. Siblings and their children return to it as needed if marriages or other domestic arrangements dissolve or if they fall on hard times. In an era of precariousness and unemployment, many families have little else. Not just a home, nor yet only an asset, the family house can bring in rent from tenants in backyard rooms. Rentals exist under the state's radar, but things change when owners or tenants die. Death brings surprises about who actually owned the house all that time, and questions about who will have access. Today, an increasing number of people report deceased estates because it matters into whose name that all-important property is transferred. So what kind of economic, what kind of formal economic field has been produced? Otherwise, poor families have assets. Township houses are no longer separated from the real estate market. Indeed, some former white working class neighbourhoods have become grey zones, where banks refuse to provide mortgages. By contrast, auctioneers and estate agents whom I shadowed reported that the township housing market is booming. But this formal economic field is characterised by confusion and ambiguity. People haven't simply learned their way into the official rules. Other norms compete. Houses are kept off the market as materialisations of kinship. Physical possession of title deeds, the pieces of paper, rather than actual registration. 
is often held to denote home ownership. So even popularly legitimate sales lack formal transfer and are virtually impossible to secure if one party dies. Some houses have been sold or inherited multiple times without any state validation over decades. The inheritance process itself assumes full incorporation into an asset market. Property must be valued in monetary terms, but this in a context where many houses have never been sold before. If there's disagreement, houses are indeed sold or liquidated and the proceeds divided. But this is actually often used by officials as a threat, reminding families to agree. Selling is really an option any party wants. Formal economic practices indeed constitute a field of measurement and official categories of monetization and bureaucratization, but ambiguity and uncertainty are palpable. How then is formality actually sustained in people's economic lives? First, the state perspective. State institutions, of course, strive for formality. Substantial work goes into upholding the unambiguous status of the legal system. At the Johannesburg Master's Office, shown here, officials are concerned to depict the parameters as clear. One official, an assistant master at the coalface of bureaucratic decision-making, explained, quote, I don't think we can deal with something that is ambiguous. You come to us, your circumstances must fit within those rules. <laughs> Equally, despite the limited reach of enforcement, for these legally trained officials, regulation has the ontological status of truth. The law is there to be obeyed, and alternatives are deviations. It's important for them to sustain what Timothy Mitchell calls state effects, which ensure that people don't confuse state and society. As in Hertzfeld's research, classifying is key to bureaucracy's own narrative. Yet, master's officials are fully aware that their control is fragile and that they have virtually no coercive power beyond their own building. Their summonses rely on South Africans' respect for authority, which is limited. Even, even within the building, there is incomplete control. The paperwork is approved with date stamps that can be replicated at a stationery shop down the road. <laughs> Officials guard their own stamps jealously, finesse distinct styles of stamping, and cultivate elaborate signatures. But only by extraordinary luck do such expressions of individuality prevent fraud, someone seeing their own imprint reproduced incorrectly and the all-important files routinely go missing in a building with insufficient space or staffing and members of the public wandering the corridors. Faced with pervasive uncertainty and social complexity, bureaucracies may accommodate themselves to ambiguity to match ordered rules to messy reality, argues political scientist Jacqueline Best. Quote, the persistence of ambiguity and its potential role as a kind of interpretive lubricant in an uncertain world suggests we need to pay a little more attention to the slippages and gaps in these meaning-making processes. And Best sees ambiguity as a bureaucratic strategy in a world of accelerating complexity. But the point is broader. Uncertainty and ambiguity go beyond deliberate meaning-making, characterizing the experience of trying to regulate and they result not only from proliferating global complexity, as we often assume in the West today, but also from old-fashioned mismatches between legal and popular practice. It's hard to read the populace. In the master's office, this mismatch is obvious 
to the younger and mostly non-white bureaucrats who've taken over from their Afrikaner predecessors. And they're far from indifferent. Many see succession law as needing an upgrade. They sympathize with clients, lose their lunch breaks to offer open-ended discussion rather than narrow process, dwell on uncertainty, and draw out the intricacies of people's circumstances. Despite their categorical statements about the legal system, they acknowledge the huge gaps between what most people think should happen with their wealth and what Roman, Dutch, and English common law say. As urban approximations of patrilineal rural homesteads, family houses are seen to devolve to siblings. The law promotes individual owners and inheritance first by the surviving spouse, who's not really considered part of the patriline. Outrage crosses class lines, and I encountered it as much from law students learning about inheritance as from aggrieved relatives. Officials' own positions are ambiguous, sympathetic to the outrage, but also committed to the legal emphasis on protecting women. Stuck in between, they've crafted their professional roles into something between mediator, advisor, and judge. Reportedly, the High Court even described them as holding a kangaroo court. Explaining the intricacies of regulation means setting out the letter of the law. They go further, defending it in didactic tones. No, one official corrected an aging man who claimed his father's house against his sister. If you're not the only child, then it's our father. At the same time, officials use non-official terms to anchor a shared script. The family house, despite its lack of any legal weight, has become central to how they negotiate everyday administration. They acknowledge its everyday reality and understand why families want to find ways to protect it through the system. And there are ways. Family indignation often focuses on a house's, uh, on a house's diversion into a nuclear branch of the wider kinship group. Officials, however, may see further significance in the story that the original process of transfer back in the 1990s was sufficiently murky to be challenged. A solution then presents itself. Families are recommended legal assistance on the off chance that the deeds can be reversed to generation, ownership legally divided among all siblings, and the ideal of the family house made a reality. Ambiguity and didacticism take on particular significance with poorer families. Last reviewed in the apartheid 1960s, the system is cumbersome and unforgivingly particular, but it's also sharply stratified with de facto class and racial implications. There are different processes for larger and smaller estates, with or without wills, and with wills through recognized banks, law firms, or wealth managers. Estates under a threshold of the equivalent of 15,000 pounds have a simplified administrative track. Here, at the margins of the system, where the state has very little control of the transfer of property, the uncertainty surrounding formal categories becomes particularly clear. A restricted system is able to appear somewhat coherent by abrogating substantial responsibility but organizing around core formal roles and rituals. After a meeting to determine next of kin and whether there's agreement about what will happen to the property, someone is given a letter as master's representative. Yet to members of the public, that all-critical letter of authority equates to ownership. While they're legally wrong, in practice, these pieces of paper enable their holders to transfer any asset as they deem fit with no further oversight. So revered are they that people may simply move into the house on the strength of the letter rather than formally transferring it. 
unsurprisingly, the most bitter fights revolve around whose name will be on that piece of paper. The status of formal documentation here is vehemently upheld, although for reasons that differ from those of officials. And the officials know it. It's their job to catch the cases of fraud, the non-reporting of inconvenient heirs, or attempts to bully or disinherit the vulnerable. But they lack information about the dynamics underlying the performances of kinship and about what master's representatives do with those letters of authority. They have no choice but to assume, until convinced otherwise, that people are lying about their struggles to meet unwieldy requirements. Claims, for example, that relatives have lost touch or are too far to be brought to the master. So, state officials sustain formality, but they do so in a whole range of modalities as judges, sympathetic listeners, didactic guides, advisors on how to make the law work for people. They suture together the system through their efforts. All of this is anchored in categories that script interaction and provide an illusion of predictability. Members of the public submit themselves for assessment. Assistant masters provide it. But a good assistant master is one who diagnoses beyond official categories. Whom is that man trying to disinherit with a letter of authority? Where are the relatives in that family house fight? Is that outrage an appeal against past injustice or only a regrettable misunderstanding of the law? Crucially, the system is such that uncertainty is intensified for poorer estates, underlining their difference. So how do non-state people sustain formality through their own plans? It was to understand this that I found myself sitting in a cluttered office behind a maths classroom in a secondary school in Soweto. Across from me sat Mr Mtemba, the 30-something head of department in a red bomber jacket. Mr Mtemba launched straight in, familiar with my research from a previous meeting. Inheritance was on his mind because his father had recently died. A man with rural origins, but an urban life, Mr Mtemba's father had done well. His substantial property was also matched by his substantial progeny, eight children, although only three within marriage. The result was an approach to inheritance that can only be described as plural, an intertwining of patrilineal norms and recognition of state laws and procedures. By law, half his estate went to his community of property wife. He'd reinterpreted that principle, using its force to support his own reasoning. All major assets should be split between his three in-marriage sons without going anywhere near formal administration. The eldest received his tractor, cattle, and everything on a farm he'd bought. Mr Mtemba, as middle son, inherited the township family house. The younger brother got the goats. In a striking reversal of stereotype, no one even claimed the original rural home, now superseded as family epicentre by the Soweto house. The other five children were kept out. A wife doesn't give to a child outside, outside the marriage, Mr Ntemba reasoned. It reminds her of what her husband's done. But they were persuaded by invoking and reinforcing the power of the state that they would lose a costly battle if they approached the authorities. Law here was a starting point and it provided a useful threat to troublesome illegitimate relatives. But it was fleshed out by quite different vernacular interpretations, and this went further. Mr Mtemba's father also had cash savings, and for these only, the will was there. All eight children inherited here, marking cash 
from his property. Each boy would receive 15% and each girl 10%, bypassing the intestate rule of gender equality. Here, due process was followed, reporting the will and this part of the estate to the master's office. A lawyer would have been involved here. But for Mr. Mtemba, the lawyer's real significance was reading the will at home, not a practice grounded in South African law or in historical norms. This instead resembles plots from television popular culture. Mr. Mtemba's own plans equally relied on and evaded formal institutional practice. He was just beginning to contemplate a will through his insurance company because he'd recently become father to a son, because he would soon embark on marriage plans with his partner, a fellow maths teacher holding a class next door, and because he'd recently taken a mortgage for the house. This plan, however, focused on making provision for his, nu- for his nuclear family in this new abode. His father's dwelling was relegated to earning him rent rather than its proper use as a hub for living and ancestral members of the extended family. Nevertheless, crucially, it'll remain outside the will and state administration, passing as a family thing through the patriline. It must rotate among members of the family, Mr. Mtemba concluded. Mr. Mtemba's story, from one perspective, was about intricate planning. But consider this from the point of view of those five children born out of wedlock. They faced being disinherited, but also the profound uncertainty of being selectively incorporated into legal process. When they protested, Mr. Mtemba warned them, quote, you can go to court, but this is what will happen. It didn't matter what would happen in court. Almost no one goes there. The world of deceased estates in South Africa is full of people with only partial understanding of the law and, for those disinherited, with little recourse. Then again, given the state's minimal capacity to enforce, in practice it barely matters. Borrowing the state's authority is a way to get one step up in South Africa's unequal economic landscape. People have a clear interest not only in selecting where they want the state to come in, but also in maintaining the distinction between formal and informal, the status threat, the family house defended by culture. Such examples are typical, not only the extraordinary intricacy of inheritance plans when there are any assets, but also creative combinations of law, patrilineal norms, and improvised custom. And the interplay of invoking the state, submitting to state administration, and avoiding the state altogether. Such rationales sustain formality as a separate register, as people choose to submit to administration. But, ever partial, this can hide as much as it reveals. What are the implications of such uncertainty for thinking about the state itself in the formal economy? Here, I return to Bourdieu, for whom the state is central to social and economic order. It has a monopoly, not just of legitimate physical violence, the police and so on, but also of symbolic violence, This is the maintenance of inequality through the forms of value that differentiate between people. We each have more or less symbolic capital. We live through a lexicon of officially sanctioned categories, income, housing, deceased estates, that define this value while structuring distinct fields like the economy. We and our formal economy, Bourdieu contends, are immersed in state thinking. Bourdieu's approach helps us think about how formality is inserted into everyday economic practices. 
in South Africa, social difference is institutionalized through employment, through grant eligibility, debts, assets, insurance, title deeds, letters of authority. Staggering material inequality is now inflected by the fast-expanded infrastructure of private property and inheritance. But how far can we generalize Bourdieu's version of state and social order? The French context, anyway, is a peculiar one from which to theorize, even in comparison to Britain next door, the product of absolutist monarchy that shaped republican administration. In South Africa, the state's reach is more restricted. The language of administration predominates, sectors, regulatory frameworks, documentation. But restricted enforcement and uncertainty in the system suggest a rather different reality. So is this just what we expect of post-colonial states? These were built on fundamentally different principles from metropolitan ones. In Europe, the idea of the modern state was built on aspirations of legibility, legitimacy, and control throughout national territories. Colonial populations were instead lumped together and treated as collectivities, their course determined by separate culture and tradition. They were premised on maintaining difference in Mamdani's well-known version, citizen versus subject, mirroring Malinowski's rigid distinction between contact zone and African culture. In South Africa, racially defined government has indeed had a powerful legacy, even after the end of apartheid. And notions of custom and culture are commonly invoked precisely to depict black urban South Africans as distant from the system. Malinowski's rhetoric, in a sense, lives on. But there is a real risk here of overemphasizing exclusion as a result of that legacy. Black urban South Africans are deeply imbricated in state administration and state categories through inheritance and through their houses. What lies beyond formalized practice, popularly cast as African tradition, is less clear-cut than citizen-subject-type distinctions suggest, less outside than it looks. Custom is invoked for the notion of the unsaleable family house, with its emphasis on collective ownership like the rural homestead, but it's also the result of earlier state planning. The houses were off the market because their residents were denied ownership rights. And the very idea of the family house remains inseparable from the document that's popularly seen to prove its existence. This is the apartheid-era family permit, which listed every member with permission to reside in the draconian system of regulating residence. Today, these permits are brought to mediation meetings at the master's office, representing the truth of history against questionable title deeds. Legal status here confronts an earlier era of formality woven into experiences of custom and culture. Bourdieu notes that people have to learn to navigate the economic field. Here, for most people, that field has only recently expanded and is entangled with a previous system of, of administration. A country like South Africa presents basic challenges for social theory from the global north. The status of the law and of the very notion of a system is fragile, even as people are incorporated into it. Carl von Holt, a South African sociologist, has outlined the limits of Bourdieu here. Despite his early experiences of conflict in Algeria, Bourdieu came to underscore a basic characteristic of social order, that the state monopoly of symbolic violence produces a remarkably bloodless and uncontested structure of inequality. Everyone knows their place, 
The social order is simply there. The categories and principles of the economic field are broadly set and stable. The edges of South Africa's order, by contrast, are jagged. People readily subscribe to alternative local moral orders. In strikes and in vigilante justice, for example, values that work against state authority are systematically enforced through physical coercion. The police respond with their own readiness to inflict harm in defense of a fragile status quo. The social order is not so flimsy, of course. South Africa is the most unequal major economy in the world by Gini coefficient, and there's no sign of this changing. But everyone knows how much overt violence, from automatic weapons to high walls with electric fencing, it takes to hold that order in place. As the ultimate arbiter of formality, of course, state practices are supposed to be backed by the threat of coercion. In his Malinowski lecture, David Graeber showed how the simplifications of formal bureaucracy depend on the capacity for violence. But in South Africa, violence is overt and formality fragile because the order is so unpredictable. And the formal system just doesn't reliably connect up. The police only unevenly enforce the master's stipulations, while they are reported to enforce fraudulent or unverified evictions. The fail-safe in inheritance disputes is supposed to be civil court, but most people lack the money, time, or inclination to sit through interminable postponements in front of intimidating judges. And if they do, there's no guarantee that any enforcement of judgment will follow. Instead, officialdom appeals to the populace by offering its services. A Johannesburg magistrate advertises his commitment to wind up ailing apartheid-era estates dating as far back as the late 1970s. Officials from the Masters and the Deeds Office appear in township meetings intended to align citizen expectations with the law and to produce a public sphere for property issues. The Deputy Master, a senior administrator, fields questions on wills and inheritance on television, responding from a chat show couch to phone-ins and Facebook messages. While most people use formal categories and processes because they work, with little interest in their particular meanings or logics, officials try to bring state thinking into being through public education about the advantages of the law. People themselves live through and outside formality. They may do much of their own enforcement, but they also know how effective a title deed can be when brought to the authorities as threat, even if policing is unpredictable in practice. Formality in economic affairs is invited in on provisional terms. Masters officials are clear that people report estates when family fights are well underway. Residents of Soweto say the same. It's when the uncles, senior men in a family, can no longer contain the disagreement about who gets what that one side approaches the master's office, hoping that their own case will be buttressed. Approaching the state is one option among several, which include summarily throwing people out onto the street or, when all seems lost, literally burning the house down, as here, a relatively common solution. For South Africa's black majority, an uneasy relationship with the formal system revolves around how far to let that system in. What do we learn about South African state administration? It lacks the power to stabilise a symbolic order, and even underlying overt coercion is uneven and lacks predictability. Officials try to persuade people into state thinking. People themselves borrow state authority as needed without worrying too much about the legal meaning of this or that document or process. 
Formality stays afloat because it bridges these possibilities. That makes it fraught, shot through with officials' own doubts about control and their sensitivities towards popular notions of fairness. An order of sorts is produced. South Africa's dramatic inequality is ultimately defined by the world of the formalized market, assets, debts, inheritance. This inequality is exacerbated by formality's particular uncertainty and unevenness in the margins, at the bottom of the pyramid. Yet people here insist on the distinction between formal and informal, especially through the efficacy of paperwork. Officialdom and the threat of court of court costs jostle with appeals to culture and the threat of burning the house down. For here, different capacities to borrow the state's authority enable some to accumulate while others are further marginalized. So I've tried to open up the terms in which we consider the formal on the margins. Formality is not just made of rules. The categories and distinctions may seem reliably detached, but, as I've argued, their on-the-ground traction is the negotiated result of different people's agendas and projects that make use of state authority. Recognizing this means appreciating how state administration might be less categorical than it appears, but also that formality has real effects. Scholarship on state administration has often divided into two camps. On the one hand, bureaucracy makes the population legible and gathers knowledge. On the other, the state knows relatively little. What goes missing in this dichotomy is officials' acute awareness as administrators and de facto experts that categories and rules are not enough to capture the complexity outside or indeed inside formal institutions. In my recent research, bureaucratic officials displayed self-doubt that reminded me of the soldiers on the Limpopo River who knew exactly how ill-equipped they were to read the border landscape. The paradox is that officials and populace also maintain the illusion of certainty required to sustain the formal economy as a field. Officials have to insist on certainty and the fundamental truth of the law. How else do state effects survive? But their categories are doing as much rhetorical work as measurement. They uphold the reality of being inside or outside the system. And other people support them in this for their own reasons, anchoring formal process in state categories and masking the unknowns lurking behind them. A further tension emerges as formality's fragility reinforces existing difference. State thinking has limited reach and overt coercion is unpredictable. Yet people in a context of inequality and precariousness borrow the state's authority in an attempt to make their own life chances. I've also argued that an approach to the formal economy today must look beyond production to include a broader spectrum of regulatory arenas, reproduction, the household, assets, inheritance. This too has implications. Karen Hastrup reminds us that any attempt to produce knowledge implies some analytical formalism, how we refine what we leave out. Recent scholarship contends that the pronouncements of officials and experts define the terrain of the formal economy. A broader canvas means reconsidering whose pronouncements we include and what they actually do. Who works on the economy as an objectified system? How do their models of structure and differentiation relate to their experiences of broader complexity? Deceased to states officials may matter here as much as policy experts especially if they appear on television, and shape a public sphere of regulation. 
Being sensitive to all this requires us to think about what structure is for us as social scientists. Morris Bloch's defense of Malinowski was that he could look beyond ritualized moments and pronouncements of structure to see how those related to the practical exigencies of getting things done. Malinowski invites us to disturb formal models of formality. State administration represents an unusually self-conscious and insistent claim of structure. It's precisely because of such insistence that we need to attend to the uncertainty that formality hides and the intersecting agendas that sustain it. Thank you.